Some of you probably don't believe this, but I actually look up pronunciations as much as best as I can whenever I start looking at a work. And I have to admit, I actually heard three separate pronunciations before I finally tracked down a clip of Mila Jovovich actually saying her own name out loud and explaining how to pronounce it. <laughs> uh, Luck Basan was another one I had trouble finding. Not as much trouble, just another one. I was like, what the heck? The, um... How do I say this? <laughs> this film was a trip. Uh, and, and interesting to look at. It, for the longest time, I've held the opinion that this is basically a Flash Gordon flick. Now, I don't mean that is a positive or a negative thing, just as a comment on the overall approach and style. Then, of course, I did my research for this, and I found out that Mr. Basson had actually started writing this world and this story to escape from the problems he was having with regards to loneliness and ostracization when he was a kid in school. And, god damn, that just sounds... That's super relatable to me. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> that was just like, yeah, I've, I've been there, dude. I'm with you. <laughs> but the problem is... It's the problem. Is that this really does feel like an older science fiction flick. Uh, like one from the 70s, in other words. One that was designed towards a different aesthetic and style of to what more modern uh, 80s, 90s, and aughts uh, science fiction films go for. There's a clear hero. There's a clear heroine. The villain is evil. Both villains, actually, are evil. And that's really the extent of their characterization. You know, there's not a lot of depth or complexity. And yet, at the same time, I can't fully say that, can I? The plot? Very simplistic. Characterization? Very simplistic. Theme? Pretty darn simplistic. But there's a weirdly large amount of world-building in this film. And I'll be 100% honest, I never noticed that before. At least not consciously. But watching it with analysis mode on, I actually started jotting down every little thing that drew, drew to mind the same overall approach, telling the story of the world that he had crafted ever since he was a kid and he'd been working on for the 20 or so years between when he started and when he actually finally got this film made. Now... I also want to say, though, that this film does suffer... Suffer. I shouldn't say suffer. <laughs> this film does have two things that uh, I don't like. I'm just going to say that as honestly as I can. I always try to be honest with you guys. Problem one is it's bizarre. Now, his directing style is a little strange, but I'm with it. He likes a lot of edits. Lot, chop, 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 chop in his overall editing style. But he also likes to do this thing where basically three scenes are happening at once and the viewpoint keeps bouncing between them appropriately to basically tell one coherent thing. And I do actually like that. But the overall tone of the entire work is just kind of bizarre. Which leads me to the second problem. The, the story itself, the plot, I should, I should clarify, is what I like to call elastic in terms of its pacing. Picture the pace, right? It's like, and then everything happens, and then it's back to super slow. And then everything happens, and it doesn't feel like it has a natural flow to it. Usually when I describe proper pacing, which, granted, there is no such thing as proper pacing, but usually when I describe pacing that I enjoy, it's more like this. There's a nice, smooth flow to it. Here it just felt like it was just, and then a bunch of stuff happens, and then as opposed to naturally, seamlessly flowing between the two types of tones and movements, right? Anyways, I also have to say, 
it's interesting that despite being portrayed as actually stupid, a lot of the characters tend to be fairly on board with the main hero. Now, I want to talk about that in two directions. First of all, that goes back to the Flash Gordon thing. He's the hero, so he's the one who's right. This is something that I've talked about many, many times when it comes to the construction of fiction, because we, the audience, know that he's right. We know that he needs to do this, but from an in-universe perspective, usually it's not so simple, and thus there's a there's a realm of believability and realism in between the obstinate bureaucrat and the we'll-do-whatever-you-want-because-it's-the-right-thing-to-do crowd. And this leans heavily over this one. That's okay. It's It's very deliberately going for that. But it's also interesting for the second reason. How many of you guys have ever seen a film called Idiocracy? This film reminded me a lot of Idiocracy. Now, I know that's invalid because I'm pretty sure Idiocracy came out first. I'm not actually sure. I didn't look that up for this. I saw Idiocracy after this film. <laughs> but I bring that up because in Idiocracy, it's a dystopian view. That's the wrong word. A depressing view of the future where everything is awful and everything is horrible and commercial and crass. And most everyone is basically stupid, except for one guy and one girl. who are And their defining character traits in that film are that they are competent. Just base-level competence, right? Now, obviously, this doesn't apply linearly, since Dallas is actually ex-military, who was a starfighter pilot who was damned good at it, by all accounts. So much so that he is, of course, the only surviving member of his squad, and that his general immediately thought of him in order to deal with this very dangerous mission. And I point all that out because that's part of that world-building thing I mentioned earlier. I, I'm not setting-building, not, not character-building, because that's not really establishment of his character. It's establishment for the kind of world they live in. Let me just go down the list. Well, do you mind? Because i got a pretty big list here. So, first, we see his apartment. His apartment is very small. Uh, I will give credit to the director on this one. He does a lot with what is effectively an extremely tiny space of how, how much room he has to live in. And it's extremely efficient, very space efficient, in fact. You'll notice that the fridge, uh, let's see, the fridge folds into the shower, and the bed folds down into the drawer, or maybe it was something else. I forget, but point, point being, it's a lot of very efficient space. Now, there's actually real-life apartments like this in areas of very high-dense population, but that's the point. Before we even see the city, we can see just by the way he lives, he lives in a place that is very, very high efficiency when it comes to its space usage, and he doesn't exactly live well. He is effectively uh, your typical working man, blue-collar kind of person. Next thing we see is that he has a fake cat. How many of you even noticed that? I'm really curious, because I sure as hell didn't, until uh, his friend on the phone, who never actually makes a, a personal appearance, mentioned that, you know, the cat is, in fact, you know, not a real cat. Then we find out that he's ex-military, and he works as a cabbie. This is part of what I mentioned earlier in my segue into this point, because... It's this guy who was one of the best of a squadron who was sufficiently elite to be leaping right to mind for this, the, the general, who is still currently having a cabinet position in the Federated whatever. His, his best option after having left the military is to go be a cab driver. Oh yeah, and also his wife left him with his lawyer, and he apparently drives so erratically that he has ton he, he's almost he's about on the verge of losing his license now the the point of this is obvious life sucks and this is a fairly typical um 
let's call it a fantasy fulfillment type story. Again, no in no insult intended. There's nothing wrong with that, really, as long as it's well presented. And the idea here is no one recognizes or acknowledges him or cares about him. Even his own mother, this is another little point, by the way, of setting building, even his own mother doesn't care about him so much as how much she thinks she should be the one going on this super mega vacation. When he finally gets there and she calls him up and says, you're terrible and blah, 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 blah. There's no congratulations. There's no, this is awesome. This is, there's no, this is such a great thing for you after all the horrible things that have happened to you. No, it's all about her. She doesn't care about him. His wife doesn't care about him. His job doesn't care about him. And his ex-job doesn't care about him. Probably the only person who's nice to him at all in the entirety of the intro is, oh God, I forgot his name. The, the nice gentleman who was selling uh, the, the food, the food cart thing, right? Which, by the way, another nice setting point to the to be in a situation where you could just open up your window and call up a food cart to your window, right? That's the that's the form they approach delivery. It's wonderful little tidbits like that. So he is completely underappreciated, despite being competent, talented, driven, and as we see, a relatively decent person, having you know senses of trying to help people and do the right thing. By the end of the film, he is celebrated as the hero who saved everything. The universe, they say, although by all accounts, based on the story, he's really just saving Earth and mankind. And, uh, oh, also, and he gets the girl, a woman who he claims to love and may or may not love him in return. I've spoken on this topic before, and I don't really feel the need to discuss the nature and depths and complexities of what love can and cannot be with regards to a movie called The Fifth Element. So, moving on. There's a mugger waiting at his door. This is one of my favorite setting points right here. There's just a mugger there who's got a thing on his head, which is like a picture of the way. So, if, so he looks out and he sees nothing, and the mugger's like, ha ha, give me your money. And there's this really subtle point that's just kind of slid under the door there as uh, Dallas says, how long have you been waiting there? And he doesn't give a straight answer, but it's implied that he's been waiting there for a while. Two things about that. First of all, it's an open hallway. Anyone could see him. So anybody who saw him didn't care or didn't bother to get involved, despite the fact that he's got this rifle and he's just sitting there like, yep. Second point, that's just normal, being mugged at your front door. Probably for drug money, based on the way it's presented. It's also a nice way to exposit the fact that Dallas is a competent individual when it comes to, for lack of a better way to put it, gun affairs. He sees the gun. He, he's completely calm despite having a gun being shoved into his face. Immediately counter grabs it, pulls down a whole thing where he's got tons of other guns, just takes it away and says, all right, bye. Again, competency. Now, there's another point to that competency thing. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, what's next? Um, claustrophobia. So that's a weird one to point out. But if you pay attention, I don't know if this is because of budget reasons or because it was deliberately designed to be, but I think this was deliberate based on the fact that he actually pulled in several uh, significant comic artists in order to do some of the design work and sketch work for how they wanted to do the sets. Most of the set and areas are very confined, cloistered, very small, you know, squeezing around people to get around, that kind of a thing. Until you get to the uh, the rich people place, of course, the vacation boat, and it's suddenly the exact opposite. Tons of room, tons of large open corridors and hallways, so I'm pretty sure that was deliberate. Which leads me down to the fog. The whole city that we start off at apparently involves a dog, 
and also a lot of verticality. So you, we see at several, several points just how tall this city is, and that the further down you go, you get to this point, which is called the fog. Now, they never elaborate on what the fog is. Uh, I, I know there's actually a novelization of this film, so maybe that actually explains it. Unfortunately, I didn't have a, a chance to read that before this, so whatever. But what I find myself wondering is, is this fog smog, or is this literally just that far up, and the fog is just the natural condensation that would happen at a certain level of elevation, especially in a condensed area like within a city. Just food for thought. Then there's the food truck thing I mentioned, the fridge shower thing I mentioned. The police control check. This one's fun. There's just, they they just have these yellow, these yellow circles. You're just supposed to put your hands up and that's where you're just supposed to be. That's just built into the apartment. That's a feature. You're just supposed to go and put spread spread your legs and put your hands on the yellow things. They don't enter the door, not unless they actually have a reason to go in. They just have this little x-ray scanner thing they look in to make sure you're there and make sure you have your hands on the circles. That's, um, that's messed up. The level of normalcy. This, this is why this really reminded me of Idiocracy. The level of normalcy that all of these intrusions and level of control that they had is kind of crazy. And pseudo-dystopian, but not quite dystopian. It, it's just, it's kind of leaning that way, you know? It's more like just a, a singular or maybe a dual exaggeration of what we have right now, which I think is why it gets to me so badly. Anyways. Then we have the trash pile at the starport. You remember that, right? There was actually a cut bit of the film, which I do know is in the book. This is on the trivia notes thing. That uh, that trash pile is there because there's currently a strike from the people who gather the trash. And no, it's just a gigantic pile of trash. Like three meters tall, right? Or, or 12 feet tall or whatever. And it's just... Everyone's just walking by completely ignoring it. I want you to imagine what a gigantic pile of trash smells like. Now, I don't have to imagine that. I've worked as a janitor. But I want to picture how everyone's just walking through the starport and not only A, just kept piling up the trash, but B, have gotten so acclimated to it, again, normalizing it, that they just kind of completely ignore it. Which brings me, of course, to my next point. The, uh, wait, what in the world? I don't know what that word is. <laughs> oh, the bunkers. They get on this ship. Now, keep in mind, this is supposed to be like a nice ship, right? They're actually going to a nice place. This is the kind of thing that wouldn't be super cheap. And yet they still have to get in these tiny little bunkers and be put into literally induced sleep in order to make the, the voyage. That being said, I actually know quite a few people who would rather just, you know, and then they wake up and then they're at their destination for airplanes right now. So that's not necessarily a terrible thing, but it gets back to that space efficiency thing I keep pointing out. Then, this is a wonderful one. They go to, to clean out the, the gears, the landing gears of the, of the craft, and they have to get all of the parasites out. And they're all just weirdly, horribly mutated flesh things as they're getting very highly radioactive canisters in and out. Kind of getting, again, visual storytelling, getting across the idea of just how wasteful and toxic the byproducts are of the society, that these kind of things are, again, normal. Now I'm going to stop there, because that's the last point at which all of these points were really made, because from that, from that point onward, we go to the pleasure cruise thing, and then it's the opposite. They start showing us the opposite stuff visually, about how wonderful and amazing things are. And of course it ends in, in the middle of the desert, with some Germans showing up for some reason. 
Did you know Luke Perry actually got higher billing than he probably should have, despite the fact that he just had a little thing in the in the prologue? If you ever wanted to know how much star power Luke Perry had back in the 90s, there's your answer. Anywho. <clears throat> now, I do have to say, the next thing I want to talk about is the super-advanced mega-aliens who are capable of making Mila Jovovich, who is, who is super perfect, I'll talk about that in just next, are taken out by two fighters, two little dinky fighters. That has always bothered me. Do they have no defenses whatsoever? Do they have no capacity to fight back or set up mega shields or just outrun them or anything whatsoever? No, they're completely helpless in the face of what is basically two little gnats poking at it. <sighs> Anyways... And, and it's so effortless, too. It, it doesn't, they don't fight back at all. This is also a good time to mention that only one thing can stop the pure evil. And by the way, the pure evil, Mr. Shadow, is pure evil, super mega ultra evil. How evil? He's mega ultra super ultra mega evil. There's nothing there. Although, nice little touch. Early on, the Admiral dude is, is just staring at the thing, trying to fire missiles on to, to, to stop it. Notice how the president, by the way, He's told the stuff by the priest, and he's not, he, he's not really nice or polite, but he's not rude either. He just says, okay, say your piece. And the priest says his piece, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to take that under advisement. And then he starts listening, and he's like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to think about this a little bit. And I only point that out because one of the biggest characterizations, putting that in quotes, of the president is that he's stupid. Or at least, that's what people always tell me. And indeed, I myself had that impression when I walked into this, but watching it again... The president's one of the very few authority figures who's actually very, fairly intelligent and keeps up with things pretty consistently throughout the film. I just thought I'd point that out really quick. Anyways. So the blood starts leaking down from the admiral's head, and you only see it for like a second or two before he is engulfed by the death flame of the death, evil, horrible death. It's a nice it's, it's a segue into what will happen later with regards to Zorg and the blood going down him just for having a phone call with Mr. Shadow. Why does Zorg work for Mr. Shadow? That has bugged me for forever. As originally, I've actually watched this film three times, counting this time. Once in theaters, once at home, and once just now. And I've always had the impression prior to this viewing that Zorg just was willing to go along with it because he was a moron. You know, typical evil corporate mogul. Yeah, you'll kill all of humanity, but I'll get a big paycheck. <laughs> you know, idiocy, in other words. But... It's worth noting that we never actually see anything about the connection or deal between Zorg and uh, Mr. Shadow, you know, the evil one. I find myself wondering if he was just going to be like, so you get me these things, and the end. And he just, and Zorg just never thought beyond that, that he was sufficiently in, in, inclined to just make tons and tons of money off of that. And that makes Zorg a moron, which, if you're paying attention, is keeping in track with things. See, here's, here's a very simple rule, okay? If someone offers you way more money than it is worth to do the job they want you to do, either this is so dangerous and stupid you shouldn't do it, they have no intention of paying you, or in the rare circumstance, they don't care about money, probably because whatever they're doing is going to invalidate the money. So in all three circumstances, you should probably not take that deal. And yet Zorg, who is apparently being bribed by absolutely ludicrous amounts of money, just says, yeah, sure. I'm down. 
I especially love the blood dripping down my forehead. That really makes me inclined to work with you, sir. Anyways, I said I'd talk about the, the Mila Jovovich thing. Now, I have no particular opinion on her as an actress. Uh, I'm told she's a pretty good singer, and she's actually a fairly competent linguist. Indeed, m most of her actual discussions of the divine language was her actually learning it and doing a good job with that. So, I mean, credit where credit is due. But I have to point out the cynicism of the fact that there are three moments in this film where the film basically pauses to say how perfect she is. And it always emphasizes that specific word. That's not my word. That's the film's word. Perfect. In fact, before she's actually introduced, the film spends, and I jotted it down, three minutes and 18 seconds just talking about how amazing she is. That may not sound like a long period of time in a you know an hour and a half movie, but I want you to picture just sitting there and praising someone for three for three minutes. Just picture that for a moment, because it's exactly what they do within this film. And then, oh my God, I want to get some pictures later. And oh, she's just so amazing. And oh, she's just so perfect. And then she's like, oh, she's just so perfect. And then later on, the priests are like, yes, yeah, she's. They really did make her perfect. Yes, yeah, super perfect. I get it, guys. I understand that she's currently dating slash married with the director. You don't have to emphasize it. Thanks. Moving on. Zorg has a speech that he gives to... I can't remember his name. The priest guy. And it's actually an interesting speech. It would have been far more interesting if they didn't immediately try to subvert it. And then actually later on they subvert it in a different direction. He gives this speech about, you know, he's got the glass. And this is, I have to confess something. I am actually a huge fan of Gary Oldman. I consider him to be one of the, the like, in the top, you know, tier, like, top 50, top 100 actors uh, in the world right now. I think he is actually absolutely excellent. And it's worth noting that he is able to take what is basically a cartoon villain role and do something interesting with it. There's actually several scenes where he manages to add an additional layer of nuance to his performance. So I just wanted to give him credit for that. But the way he gives his speech about, so I'm going to knock this this cup off the table and now it's destroyed. And now they come in and look at all these devices, all doing and working stuff. And think of all the people who had to build them and think about the people that they had to build them. And basically just discussing one of the things that is actually a real life concept. The idea of the cycle of life from an economic perspective, rather than from the a lion eats a stag kind of a perspective, right? And I was just like, huh, that's fascinating. And then he has his cherry thing and starts choking. <laughs> and his point is basically immediately made moot because he suddenly turns incompetent. I've actually been choking in real life, too, and you can still speak a little bit when choking. And at the very least, you can get on the comm with someone and say, <laughs> and you know, or like call for help or something. <sighs> then the, the movie becomes a cartoon and stays a cartoon for a while. And when I say it stays, it's a cartoon, I'm not quite kidding. Obviously, it is not animated. How many of you guys have ever watched cartoons? It's okay, don't be shy. There's nothing wrong with cartoons, as long as they're good. But one of the interesting things about cartoons, and this is probably because of Looney Tunes, although I've never done a deep study on this, because there's a sound design thing that cartoons do. It's a thing where every time you do a specific type of motion, there's a little sound effect approaching it, right? You know what I'm talking about. And most people, I've noticed, don't notice that at all. It's just... Wait, so you want to, huh? 
you know, it just just little bits as they're as they're moving to help emphasize the moment. Even good cartoons do this, and especially bad ones do this. So then the movie started doing this, just blatantly, just, and I'm just, you, huh? And then a lot of things happened that would make a lot more sense if this was a Looney Tunes. I mentioned Idiocracy earlier, but by this point in the film, I realized this is actually more along the lines of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, more specifically with Dallas playing Bugs Bunny, the one competent person who can basically maneuver his way around everyone else and pushes them into cartoony circumstances. Him pushing the two military guys and his own boss, offering him a job into the fridge, is one example of that. Just, just one, and there are plenty after that. I'm not going to list them all. And then Chris Tucker shows up. Originally, his role was actually going to be played by Prince. And I believe that. So Chris Tucker shows up, and he is loud. And, um... I, I, I don't like Chris Tucker. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have no other way to say that. Like, I have liked a few things he's been in, legitimately. But his portrayal here in this film is just something that I do not enjoy. Oh my god. He is loud and obnoxious, and for some reason he never leaves the film. He is actually a major character for the entire rest of the film. And it made me think of another thing. Because Dallas is very low-key. He doesn't say a lot. He talks in a fairly normal tone of voice. In fact, I would say, and this goes back to the Flash Gordon thing a little bit, Dallas is the most normal character in the film. And that's saying something considering he's ex-military and extremely competent. Which isn't really normal. But he is still, in, in terms of his tone, his presentation, his voice, the way he holds himself, the way he talks, the way he moves, all of that is very normal. And I'm pretty sure that's on purpose. I bring that up because that then puts him into direct contrast with, I can't remember his character name. It's Ruby, but you know, I don't remember the full name. Uh, so anyways, Chris Tucker's character, which is someone who is loud and just, you know, just completely going out for it. In other words, trying to be as attention-grabbing as possible, whereas someone like Dallas is someone who is basically trying to avoid attention as much as possible. This is when I stop having notes in the movie, basically. Like, I have a bunch of notes up to, basically up to this point, and then the film just kind of keeps going for, like, another half hour or so. You know, we see Mr. Shadow for the first time. Um, we find out that they have 400 beaches you can go to. Oh, and if you want to go to the restaurants, you just have to go anywhere between levels 2 and 10. I want you to picture eight floors of restaurants for a moment. Just picture that. It's it's just a tiny little bit of world building for to, to show into contrast this compared to the city we just came from. Anyways. Um... And then there's a shootout, there's the rock opera scene, lots of j jumping back and forth in perspective, like I talked about earlier. I also want to talk about uh, one uh, a very minor point, and it's such a minor point that I only want to comment on it because it shows that obvious care was put into the construction of the narrative. Despite its relative simplicity, it is very well executed, is what I'm trying to say. And this one point, I never noticed before. Earlier on, uh, Zorg says fire fire a million we could fire 500,000 fire a million and that of course shows how much he's an idiot i'm not going to get into the deep economic discussion of why laying off a million people abstractly and for no reason is a bad thing i think we can all just accept that and move on 
And then later on, he gets a message saying he's been fired. And he works for Zorb. He actually is part of the same company. And it's a blink-and-you-miss-it kind of a thing. But it helps to showcase that, because the implication is that all the trouble he's been in recently is why he's fired. But it's not. For all that he did, for all the trouble he was in, for all the issues with the military and the police and everything else, he was fired because 999,999 other people were fired for basically no reason. And that's the world that this, this portrays. And see, that's one of the things I find interesting, is later on in the film, uh, Lilu, or Loli, God, I don't remember her name either. I'm sorry, my brain was having weird troubles with this film. I'll be completely honest with you about that. But she mentions, she goes, and there's this big dramatic scene, which actually a lot of other 90s films did, now that I'm thinking about it, where she finds out about war and how horrible war is. Now, war is a terrible thing. I'm not trying to dissuade that. What I'm trying to say is that she has had all the evidence she needs of how horrible life is before war. Because we have been shown over and over and over in many different ways, many of which I just listed for you at the beginning of this, this video, about just how horrible and awful life really is. And more to the point, and this to me is very important, how normal that awfulness is. That's the key. See, if I can just preach for just a second. Awfulness, fine. Pain, sure. Unpleasantness, whatever because it's temporary. You endure it, you, you work around it, you fix it, you get past it. It's when it becomes normal that that's the problem. That's why Idiocracy bothers me. Even though it's just a comedy film, it doesn't make me laugh, except for one time. There's one joke in that whole film that makes me laugh. Credit if you can guess it. But that's why it bothers me, because, because the horribleness is normal. It's not like there's some horrible, oppressive force that needs to be pushed down. No, this is just a Tuesday. And that gets to me. And I wish they had gone that direction instead of war and why bother you know, with life when all you do is destroy. I would have changed that around to something more along the lines of why bother with life when you're not actually living. Anyways, that fun topic out of the way. What the hell is up with the speed of Mr. Shadow? Like, I kind of get why he went to Zorg and was like, hey, look, listen, I need you. You notice how his powers are basically magic, by the way? I don't mean magic. I mean magic. Imagine the confetti. He going to Zorg to get the elements of harmony or whatever the hell makes a degree of sense to me. Because he wants to make sure that they're off the playing field so then he could go and destroy Earth or the entire universe, depending on who you ask. The thing is... By all accounts, he could have just done that anyways without really worrying too much about it. I don't know. But what I really want to point out is, the moment Zorg dies, he apparently knows, and just starts beelining for Earth. And I quote, going so quickly that their ships are having trouble keeping up. Then there's a scene where it's barreling towards actual Earth. And then there's like several more minutes before he actually slams into Earth. Anyways, I'm just going to move on from that. But what I do wonder is, what's after he is defeated, destroyed, I don't know, there's a moon left over. How many times do you think this cycle has repeated? Every 5,000 years, right? How many times do you think this thing has come here and they've had to push it back? There's an implication which has levied that it comes back no matter what. 
But if it wins, that good will not come back. And thus, evil always has to be fought, kind of one of the usual undercurrent themes of these kind of works, that evil is a recurrent problem that always must be opposed. But, um, does it leave a moon each time? And what are they going to do with that thing up there? I mean, they mention it's 60 miles up. That is very close to Earth's surface. That's a... Uh, that's decaying orbit range right there. I sure hope... I mean, they have the tech to move it, but considering the society they live in, they'll probably sell it out to the lowest... You know, the, the cheapest bender and just... And then we'll have a moon colliding with the Earth, and then everyone dies anyways. The end! Ah, oh, happy ending after all. They'll at least have more space with the real estate. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one, guys. This was a very out-of-left-field one for me. I'm going to go recover for a bit. I'll see you next time.